forever. Dog. Welcome to Public Intellectual. I'm your host, Jessica Crispin. This podcast is supported by its listeners. So if you would like Public Intellectual to continue, you can go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. And in exchange for a small donation a month, you'll get access to bonus episodes, exclusive writings, a tote bag, the usual Patreon bribes. And this week we have to thank new donors Rebecca Davis and Eleanor Lynch and everyone else who keeps the show going. Your donations and your support are greatly appreciated. So go to patreon.com slash public intellectual. We've done a couple episodes now on housing issues, primarily focusing on housing shortages. Today we're going to talk about the specific situation of Kansas City, but there are many cities in the same situation as Kansas City where there's a lot of housing, but for some reason evictions are going up, rents are going up, housing prices are going up. What can a city do and what can a tenant do in order to keep from having a population or neighborhood or an ethnicity be displaced? So we're talking with Tara Ragover. She is head of the Kansas City Eviction Project, and she's been dealing with these housing issues for years. We're used to hearing about the housing crisis in cities like New York City and San Francisco, where there is just not enough housing. Uh, There's not enough housing built for the increase in population, and there's not enough housing specifically for lower middle classes. Um, The situation in Kansas City seems different to that. So what's sort of fueling the eviction process and the housing crisis in Kansas City? Kansas City has a really interesting history, uh, and I think that's a that's a good place to start. Uh, Kansas City is sort of a sprawling metro area. It's not huge, but it is pretty sprawling, and the metro area actually expands over the state line. So there's a Kansas City on the Kansas side and a Kansas City on the Missouri side, two separate municipalities, both with different mayors and governance structures, but it kind of functions as one city. Um, so I think an important sort of grounding for the conversation. And the rental market, as you said, looks very different from a New York or a San Francisco or even like a Seattle or a Denver at this point. And I think in its difference, it's an interesting place to organize. And frankly, it's in that difference that I have returned to Kansas City, the place where I grew up, to organize tenants Um because there is a lot of space and there are a lot of vacant units and there are a lot of units in the city that but for some needs for rehabilitation or repair might be habitable. And Kansas City is still a place where low-income people, uh, poor folks, workers, people of color can still afford to live which is just not the case in some other cities in the United States. And so with these cities that are sort of second and third tier in the United States, as far as um, population and income goes, um, that don't that haven't seen these sort of boom markets um, due to the influx of tech or some other um, industry like that. 
what are their particular uh, problems that they face in housing? Um, especially in a city like Kansas City um, that experienced such dramatic white flight and development of suburbs. Um, so, so what is the situation in a city like that? I think as a starting point, Kansas City is not a place that's seen a boom with tech or other industry, but it is a city that presents itself as kind of frothing at the mouth for that boom. So it's kind of in that tier of cities that's like desperate for an Amazon or another big multinational uh, company to make a home here. And that plays out in a lot of different ways that have helped um, shift the rental market to a place of real stress now. What I mean by that is like Kansas City is bending over backwards to uh, liven up its downtown and some of its uh, sort of more central urban areas, inviting development and granting massive tax abatement to any developer that's interested in coming to Kansas City and making it, frankly, more like New York or more like Chicago. Uh, so that's one thing that's kind of putting stress on the rental market. But again, the story of Kansas City's uh, housing crisis now is connected to its history. Um, and as you said, connected to specifically its racial history. Uh, Kansas City was the birthplace of some of the most racist housing policies that we know of in the country. So redlining, uh, restrictive covenants, uh, in some ways were invented by the big real estate men of Kansas City. There's one in particular, J.C. Nichols, who took pride in his statement that cities are the product of the real estate man. And he designed in Kansas City a country club district, which still exists today. And he also designed then areas of the city for Black folks to live, which are still, for the most part, the places where Black folks are able to live in this city. Um, so I think, you know, there's hyper-development going on. There's the gentrification that comes with that and sort of the price gouging throughout the market. And then there's also the deep history and persistent contemporary reality of racism in Kansas City's housing market. Uh, and quite frankly, there are other issues as well, like the housing stock is not the best in the world. Um, and a lot of it is dilapidated. And of course, when there's dilapidated housing stock as a product of disinvestment, when white folks left for the suburbs, um, that's the place that now poor folks, black and brown folks have to live. Those are their options. And this focus on downtown development um, seems to be, um, well, I moved from Kansas City to Baltimore uh, about six months ago, and they seem to be taking a, a similar tack, which is we'll just focus on the waterfront and then everything else will take care of itself. Um, so this focus on downtown development, like what's behind it? D does this actually help to increase the tax base? Like, what is the thought process behind something like this misguided or no? Well, I can't really pretend to understand the thought process. Like, I understand the dominant narrative, right? The dominant narrative is, this is great for the tax base. This is great to attract people to the city. Um, this will make our city a world-class city like some others in this country and around the world. Like those are the narratives that I hear, but to say I understand them is probably not accurate um, because within those dominant narratives, like immediately you start to find the holes, right? Like uh, if purportedly downtown development is good to increase the tax base, 
but it comes at the cost of say $25 million to, to subsidize a parking garage for a luxury apartment building downtown that's not filled because there's not demand for it, then I'm not sure if that argument holds up, right? There seems to be the this, um, well, I don't know if antagonism is is the right word, but a uh, let's say a different difference in priorities between the homeowner and the renter, right? Um, especially in a place like uh, like Kansas City, um, where uh, the policies that homeowners who are traditionally very listened to by politicians. Um, those are going to be in conflict with what is best for for people who are on the rental market. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Like, it does seem that the home prices are skyrocketing in Kansas City, which I find mysterious. Um, and uh, while the rental market is is, um, is dealing with these issues of, of mass evictions and so on, so what is that relationship between the homeowner and the tenant? I think it's a more interesting question in a place like Kansas City than in other places, mostly because it's not a given that owners in Kansas City are necessarily wealthy folks, uh, where they are necessarily wealthy folks in other places like New York City, right? In Kansas City, there's actually a history of sort of working class uh, property ownership. There's a history of Black property ownership. Um, so it's a little bit more complicated of a story. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that the interests of owners and renters are just definitely uh, unaligned in a place like Kansas City. Um, one way that I've been thinking about it recently is, you know, my project right now is organizing tenants. And by that, I mostly mean renters, but I also might mean people who are tenants to their bank, right? And by that, I mean owners who owe a ton in their mortgage. They're paying property taxes that have kept them underwater. Um, they're being taxed uh, disproportionately and are otherwise kind of struggling with their housing, even though they might have a, like relative more security than, um, than a renter. I mean, it's kind of a different situation entirely. Uh, but I do think like being in Kansas City requires someone like me who's interested in kind of the big picture of um, like the idea that everyone should have access to a safe, accessible, truly affordable home. Uh, like I think there needs to be a little bit of a bigger tent that we, um, that we organize uh, a base into um, that might include some owners. And then of course it doesn't include all owners and some other owners have very different interests than the renting class in Kansas city um, and are very concerned with uh, uh, very concerned with and have access to um, local politics that, as you said, more often than not works in their interests and not in the interests of the renting class. Obviously, there is a uh, racial element um, with the evictions. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, about the sort of demographic disparity of where these evictions are taking place um, and how they're proceeding? Sure. So I have worked with a data set for the last six or so years of all of the evictions in Jackson County, which is kind of the core urban county in Kansas City, Missouri spanning 1999 through 2018. And 
one of the first and most shocking, uh, but not entirely surprising findings from the data when we mapped it, is that the evictions in Kansas City are concentrated in the poor Black areas. And especially when you look at it on a map, it's so evident uh, that there is a racial story to tell about housing and evictions in Kansas City. Um, So I made this map actually with a friend of mine who is a data scientist. He's not from Kansas City. And his first question was like, what the hell is that line running through the city? Like it wasn't the state line, but it's this north-south split uh, where all the evictions were on the east side of that line um, and almost none of them were on the west. And for folks not from Kansas City, that that line is Troost, which is the historic racial dividing line in the city. And what we found in the data uh, is that a person is 19 times more likely to be evicted on the east side of Troost than on the west side of Troost or in the more white part of Kansas City. Um, and that when we hold all other variables constant, including income, race is the biggest predictor by far whether or not a person will be evicted in Kansas City. Troost is so interesting um, in the sense of even if you just sort of are looking at rental prices, if just going a couple blocks west of Troost, the rent goes up hundreds of dollars, right? Like it's, um, it's as much, I think, uh, psychological somehow in Kansas City of our idea of what's a livable neighborhood or not. Like it's just this idea of um, west of Troost, east of Troost, uh, and and sort of property that we value and and so on. Can I mean what uh, what is the history of uh, Troost Avenue in in Kansas City and how does that still play out today? So I feel more equipped to speak to the second part of your question. I grew up in Kansas City, but I grew up on the Kansas side of the state line in Johnson County, which quite different from Jackson County, where I now do a lot of my research and my organizing. Johnson County is a wealthy white bubble. And I think anyone who lives within it, for the most part, will acknowledge that. It's just a totally different world. Um, And what's been interesting about coming back to Kansas City as an adult and organizing with poor tenants is that I'm learning the other perspective of the city, right? So growing up, like the thing that all of our parents would tell us is like, don't go east of Troost, right? And a lot of cities have a Troost. In Chicago, it might be don't go west of Western or something like that. In St. Louis, there's Del Mar. Um, But that was the thing that was sort of like the, uh, that was our guidance as we left the house on a given night. And On the east side of Troost, I'm learning that is a similar uh, thing that a parent might say to a child, you know, don't go west of Troost, because, of course, we have no idea um, what's going to happen to especially a person in a black or brown body um, when they're in the predominantly white uh, part of town. Um, So that's kind of and what's amazing about that sort of connected to your question about the history of Troost is like. Uh, Troost is not a new racial dividing line. It's been there for um, probably the better part of the century, but I don't know the specific history around it. Um, but the fact is, it is still to this day a racial dividing line. And I do believe that those pieces of advice on both sides of Troost are still the pieces of advice that parents are giving kids, um, which kind of speaks to its um, persistence as a divider in the city. And one thing I'm sort of interested in is how, especially in a, in a city like 
Kansas City that a lot of the neighborhoods are, especially away from downtown and away from the sort of west side of Kansas City, Missouri, are food deserts and they don't have a lot of sort of resources. Mm. So how one sort of develops a neighborhood without it sort of leading to this inevitable gentrification and displacement um, is something I'm interested in. But what are, you know, that it's not just about evictions and, and the housing crisis on the east side of Kansas City. It's really just about um, limited access to any grocery store that isn't an Aldi, which is also probably miles away anyway. Um, mm-hmm. But these sorts of things. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the most complicated questions plaguing American cities today, right? Like there are communities that have been historically cut out of access to food, safe housing, safe neighborhoods, like clean drinking water, and uh, to deny those communities the luxuries that we've all enjoyed that, frankly, of course, should not be considered luxuries like grocery stores um, is wrong. And I think a lot of the communities on the east side of Kansas City, at least the folks that I've been in conversation with, like, yeah, they want a they want a grocery store for the first time in their lives. And it's like, um, uh, they feel crazy thinking (laughs) that that's something that they even have to like fight for and demand. On the other hand, um, you know, everyone has seen across the country and in Kansas city, what happens when, uh, development comes to Troost as is currently happening, right? There's like, a juice shop on Troost, a couple coffee shops. There are people who are uh, really interested in like gobbling up whole blocks east of Troost to foster some development, which feels um, inevitable uh, in some ways and uh, maybe exciting to the communities that live east of Troost who haven't had any sort of investment and have been completely neglected for a long time. And on the other hand, I think, you know, most of the folks I talk to who live on the east side of that divide know enough about how this story has played out across the country to know that what might mean a great grocery store for them initially might also mean five years later being sort of price gouged out of uh, staying in their community. So with something like, I remember um, the mayor making a push for uh, the Amazon second headquarters and, and, and stuff like that. Like, um, is that inevitably bad for a city? And what can a city do to in order to attract something of that nature that Kansas City does seem so desperate to, um, to bring in without sort of causing the sort of mass um, displacement and um, rising costs and, and things like that, the, the, the ill effects that come with um, a, a sudden insurge of, of money and people like that? My immediate answer is a cynical yes. And Amazon coming to a city like Kansas City is definitely bad. Um, And the reason that's my knee-jerk response is that we haven't seen otherwise. Like, I don't have a good example I can point to of where a multinational corporation has come to a city and it hasn't led to 
you know, tens of thousands of people being displaced and workers being exploited and local businesses being killed. Like, find me that example, please. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, I'm happy and open-minded to change my answer, but my cynical answer is yes. And then to the second part of your question, like, I think if cities like Kansas City are kind of desperate for that kind of investment, I think it has to come with real bargaining. Like, I think the desperation causes city officials in places like this to, as I said before, kind of bend over backwards and offer any sort of tax abatement Mm -hmm. or benefit or incentive that they can think of, leaving a bunch of power on the table right? Like communities actually have power to negotiate the terms of that kind of investment if the investment is to happen. So something that I would love to see here and in other cities is like a citywide policy for community benefits agreements. There's a lot of power that's kind of dispersed and diluted if we organize for those types of agreements, uh, development by development. But if there was a citywide policy that said any development over, you know, um, uh, X million of dollars uh, has to buy into XYZ provisions that provide affordable housing, that um, support community land trusts, that invest in local businesses, that use local vendors um, and contractors. I think that makes the Amazon showing up here slightly more palatable and perhaps provides a little bit more security for the folks of Kansas City. Um, But again, I'm not sure that that is actually uh, a long-term solution against the like uh, infusion of capital and outside people who sort of inevitably displace the folks who are here. Mm -hmm. And so what kind of rental protections exist within Kansas City? I mean, every every sort of city has its own different protections and laws about how much rent can be raised and um, and notice before eviction and all these sort of other sorts of things. But is Kansas City a, does it have a legitimate form of protection for its tenants or is it one of these sort of, you know, Texas kind of free-for-all uh, places? It's a little bit more in the free-for-all uh, range, unfortunately. Uh, the state house in Missouri has done a lot to preempt what we can achieve at the local level, which is unfortunate, but it's not terribly unique. Uh, in the 90s, Alec, um, sort of in the dead of night, and when not a lot of people were paying attention, went around and got a bunch of state houses across the country to preempt rent control and a number of other tenant protections. Uh, and that's the case in Missouri. We have a rent control preemption. And so what that means on the city level is we can't uh, really fight for or win um, rent regulations until there's the ability to run a statewide campaign on that. Um, those statewide campaigns are happening in places like Illinois, um, sort of famously in California recently, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And then there are a whole other set of potential tenant protections which more or less don't exist in Kansas City. Um, We've had some meager recent wins. um, And I shouldn't say meager. They're important, but they don't add up to a sum total of a tenant being particularly protected here, unfortunately. Um, So in August, there was a win on the ballot uh, with a healthy homes ordinance. It's kind of a rental inspection ordinance that sends the health department out to inspect rental properties um, and fines landlords if there are violations. 
Um, it's too soon to say whether or not that's being enforced properly. And I think the other risk of that type of policy is like, you know, I have a leader in my base, Tiana, who called the health department as part of this program and they came out and they deemed her place uninhabitable and they effectively evicted her and had nowhere to send her, mm-hmm. right? So she's been living in a hotel for six months paying $300 a week um, while she recovers uh, from ovarian cancer. And uh, so, so yeah, I think like what that leads me, like the analysis that leads me to is that there are, there are campaigns that we can run and potentially win that are little pieces of a tenant protections agenda that renters in Kansas City desperately need. Mm-hmm. Um, but I really think we, uh, we have to knit them all together into like a renter's bill of rights, which certainly does not exist at the city level uh, and definitely not at the state level. Um, but it's in that sort of comprehensive uh, bill of rights uh, that comes with real teeth and enforcement that we might actually protect the renting class in Kansas City. And what would the um, the bill of rights consist of, and for that would be helpful in sort of very much sort of stabilizing the rental population in Kansas City? Yeah. So there are two pieces that I'll highlight. Um, one, and I haven't really worked out the solution here, but in my eviction research, uh, we've done sort of a deep dive on landlord-tenant court, and we found that when an eviction case makes it to court, 99.8% of the time, the landlord wins and the tenant loses. Uh, or sorry, yeah, and the tenant loses. And um, there's this kind of performance of justice that happens in landlord-tenant court that I think needs to be addressed somehow. Um, representation is obviously part of the story. The landlord's almost always have representation and the tenants almost never do. Uh, but it's not the entire story because by the time you get to eviction court, uh, most of the cases in Kansas City are uh, on no- non-payment of rent. And there's actually not a legal defense there. Um, but anyhow, I think that points to like a problem. And again, I haven't really found what the solution might look like that brings some justice or some recourse for the tenant in the process of their eviction. And anyway, that's a little band-aid-y, right? It's like a little bit too late. Um, Another thing that I'm really interested in seeing in something like a tenant bill of rights in Kansas City is something called the right of first refusal. And this is uh, granting tenants of a building the right when their landlord is uh, thinking of selling the property to buy the property themselves, to kind of collectively bargain and buy the unit. um, So they each have sort of limited equity in the property and it can become some sort of um, uh, renter occupied uh, co-op. And there are amazing, like beautiful kind of revolutionary models of this across the country. Um, They haven't really been taken to scale. And I don't frankly know what that would look like. I'm excited to see that in the future. I think that's like a really beautiful possibility. Um, but I think the right of first refusal is a first step that gets us, that at least like opens up the option of what it looks like when renters um, fight for and win their own stability and get to stay in their building and actually uh, end up with equity, like a stake in the building, um, even when the landlord is interested in selling it um, for a profit. And just kind of on a personal level, what made you move back to Kansas City and take up this work? Yeah, it's a complicated question. I grew up here. I love Kansas City. 
but I kind of ran away when I was 18 and never expected to be back here. And even the past six years, as I've studied this issue and become more and more invested in um, exposing the problem and building towards solutions in Kansas City um, around housing, I haven't really seen myself here. Um, I'm a national organizer and I run a national housing justice campaign with a group called People's Action. Uh, and that work really feeds me. It's all housing at every level. But so anyway, it took me until about a year ago to, to really take seriously the prospect of coming back here. And I think it was a couple things like one, I was sort of waiting around for a unicorn of an organizer to present themselves to me and say that they were ready to go organize the tenants. Um, like I was really clear that my research was not going to lead to any material change in the lives of people who are impacted. So I'm biased towards organizing as a way to actually win that material change. And uh, yeah, I was kind of sitting around waiting for an organizer to present themselves to me. Um, and then the second part of it is, especially this summer with the mayoral and council races, or sorry, last summer, with the mayoral and council races this spring approaching and candidates um, announcing themselves and their platforms, um, it felt a little bit more urgent than ever before to you know, bring some uh, needed attention and humanity to a community that's mostly been neglected and left out of the civic conversation in Kansas City, um, you know, the renters and poor folks and workers more broadly. Um, and honestly, it just started to feel irresponsible to come back here with my PowerPoint deck and my slides and, um, you know, agitate people about this issue and not commit to building something um, out of that agitation. So anyway, those mix of things. Forever Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.